0: Hello and welcome to the Talking Physio podcast. In this episode, clinical associate professor Mark Elkins, the scientific editor of Journal of Physiotherapy, chats with Professor Marco Pang from the Department of Rehabilitation Sciences at the Hong Kong Polytechnic University about the value of exercise in improving the lives of people with cognitive impairment and dementia. Marco shares important findings from the systematic review published in Journal of Physiotherapy, in particular, that supervised multimodal exercise has beneficial effects on improving physical functioning in people with cognitive impairment and dementia. Before we dive in, this episode has been brought to you by the Physiotherapy Research Foundation, supporting the promotion and translation of research, and sponsored by FlexEase the exclusive partner of the Physiotherapy Research Foundation. FlexEase, Australia's number one heat wrap, has been clinically proven to be effective for back pain relief lasting up to 15 hours. Let's get started.
1: Marco, your review addressed a topic that's been reviewed many times, I guess with different slants or different focuses or or different criteria to dictate which studies will make it into the review and which ones won't. And a lot of those were done in recent years. So what was your motivation for revisiting this topic? Was there substantial new evidence or did you find a, a new approach to what you'd include in the data?
2: Uh, yes, there was new evidence and but it's more than that. We felt a need to do a more updated review because there's a large amount of information out there, but also previous reviews have taken a particular focus, typically. An example would be they just looked at a specific type of exercise or a specific type of patient population, such as mild cognitive impairment. So we tended to use a more inclusive approach to look at the topic of exercise training in general in people with cognitive impairment
1: and dementia. So that made the review much bigger than other recent reviews in this area. It was a really comprehensive look and a mountain of work. Did it also allow you to achieve things that the other reviews didn't?
2: And We were able to do a lot more meta-analysis, so whatever conclusions that we draw from that would be more definitive. And because of the large amount of data, we were also able to do a lot of sensitivity analysis, subgroup analysis. So that would tell us uh, something about uh, whether the exercise training effect would differ depending on the patient characteristics or the type of
1: exercise and so on. Hmm. So I I see those meta-analyses as really valuable because they add so much more than what they provide information that wasn't available in any of the original studies individually. And, and, and so I really loved that aspect of your paper. How did you keep the size of the paper manageable when you had so many studies, so much data, and so many subgroup analyses?
2: That was a real challenge, I have to say. So in the paper, we tended to put the subgroup analysis, sensitivity analysis, under the main analysis, using the same forest plot. So that makes more efficient in terms of the use of space.
1: Before we delve into the subgroup analyses and the sensitivity analyses what were some of your main findings?
2: So based on our review we have strong evidence that exercise has beneficial effects on improving various aspects of physical functioning such as sit-to-stand performance, step length, balance, mobility and walking endurance, in people with cognitive impairment and dementia.
1: So they're all really um, useful functional outcomes. Um, What type of exercise training should this clinical population be doing? Were you able to determine that from your review?
2: In our review, we were unable to find that a particular type of exercise is more beneficial than others. Instead, based on what we found, participants who engage in supervised multimodal exercise are more likely
1: to achieve, you know, these benefits. Was there a number of times per day or a number of minutes per day or a number of times per week that you would be able to recommend from your we review? We
2: recommend 60 minutes a day or two to three
1: times per week. Okay. So there wa- there wasn't clear evidence for resistance exercise being better than aerobic exercise, but this idea of a supervised program on that sort of regimen, 60 minutes a day, two to three times a week, um, was effective. Okay, so what about the subgroup analyses? What did you find there?
2: Well, interestingly, the, um, those people who have more uh, severe cognitive impairment or more severe physical impairment, actually they tend to improve more after exercise training so I thought that's quite
1: interesting Mm. and do you have an idea of why that might be have you and your co-authors discussed why someone who is has more severe impairment would do you think it's the fact that they're getting supervision whereas people with mild impairment maybe could do the exercise independently without needing the supervision or
2: Um, we're not certain But we thought one possibility is that perhaps, you know, their baseline performance is quite poor and the room for improvement is more, you know, with exercise training. Perhaps that's one reason why the degree of improvement is more for people with more severe impairment.
1: And do you think the MADA group, would it have been, could it have been a ceiling effect that we get them, do you think in the trials that people got up to such high levels that they were getting a ceiling effect on the measures that were used in these trials, because I guess they'd never get to a ceiling effect on their athletic performance if they got sensationally good. But maybe some of the tests like... Um,
2: yeah, the Berg Balance Scale.
1: Yeah, for example. You know,
2: perhaps you know, there's a ceiling effect there. Yeah. And uh, with these people with mild impairment, the level of performance is quite good already at baseline. So it, I think it's more challenging to push further for this group. Yeah, there may be a ceiling effect. That's possible.
1: Okay, so where to from here? What do you think your group's research priorities will move on to now? One
2: of the knowledge gaps that we identified in our review is the lack of research related to dual task or cognitive motor exercise training.
1: Can you explain just a little bit what that is, what that involves?
2: In dual task training, you combine basically mobility or balance training with cognitive exercise. And uh, when you engage in dual-task exercise, you do both the motor activity and the cognitive activity simultaneously.
1: Right. So having to read out a list of numbers and walk an obstacle course or walk a particular path.
2: So you engage in various balance or mobility exercises while engaging in a cognitive task concurrently.
1: So that's often used as an assessment tool or an assessment method to try and tease out what's going on in research studies, but you're talking about using it as a clinical training method?
2: Yes, we have done some research on that already in the stroke population, and we found it's quite beneficial in terms of reducing the cognitive motor interference during walking as well as reducing actual fall rate. And uh, we know in people with cognitive impairment and dementia fall is a major issue, and they have both physical impairments and cognitive impairments. So I thought dual tasks or cognitive motor training might play a role here in this population, and we need to do more research
1: on that. Mm, that sounds fascinating. So are, are other groups looking at that as well, or is this something that's kind of a new, a using it in that training way rather than an assessment way? I think way? Is some that something-
2: groups have looked at the effect of you know, dual task training on cognitive impairment in people with MCI or dementia. But to use that to reduce fall risk, I think this is something that is quite new that we need to explore in the new future.
1: Mm. So when you're doing that in your research as a training method, so I gave a hypothetical example before. Can you tell us more precisely what you are using, how you're combining a physical and a cognitive task?
2: I will give you some examples. I would have patients doing an obstacle course while performing serial subtractions, for example.
1: Okay, so they're from 100, they have to go Yeah, I'll give them a
2: random number, Six. and then they subtract, they do serial subtractions of threes, sevens, you know, different numbers. Or I could have them tell me a story, you know, with a specific topic. And uh, so they engage in various cognitive activities while doing, you know, different
1: activities that would challenge their balance and mobility. I think that's the main idea. Hmm. Yeah. That's great. So for anyone who doesn't know, MCI is minimal cognitive impairment. Is dual task training being used clinically or is it just in the research domain at the moment? Uh, it's not common in our clinical practice. It's
2: something that is relatively new. And we're trying to do a lot of promotion, you know, in our local communities, in various populations. We're doing it in a stroke population now, and we're trying to, you know, introduce this to the management of people with dementia, or mild cognitive impairment. And they do that in Parkinson's disease as well.
1: It's interesting what you say about Parkinson's. Are Are people doing similar research there?
2: People with Parkinson's disease, they, you know, a lot of them have cognitive impairment because we used to think that, you know, Parkinson's disease is just a motor Mm -hmm. disease. But, you know, we found a lot of people with Parkinson's disease actually have cognitive impairment and they, you know, they fought a lot because of a variety of reasons. But um, a lot of the dual task research that they did in Parkinson's disease, they also found that, you know, when they engage in a concurrent cognitive tasks, the, the walking really slow down more and uh, so there's a lot of interference between the two. Yeah, So that's why uh, introducing this type of training might be beneficial.
1: What about any other neurological conditions?
2: Stroke, I've done research on stroke, the paper has been published and what is encouraging is that we, we were able to reduce the amount of interference after eight weeks of training as well as reducing the fall rate by 25% over a six-month period.
1: So from a research methods point of view, how do you demonstrate the lack of interference?
2: So we need to measure walking under what we call single-task conditions, so just walking. And then we also need to measure cognitive performance under single-task conditions. So that means when we assess the cognitive performance, we need to do that in sitting. And then we need to assess the dual task performance. So have them do the cognitive task while you know engaging in walking tasks or balanced tasks. And by comparing the dual task performance versus single task performance, then we can use a particular formula to calculate the degree of interference.
1: So you see how well they walk around the course and then if you you retest them doing the cognitive task at the same time, and if they don't deteriorate, then we say the interference yeah. of the cognitive and task what is. Has...
2: What is very important is that when you assess the dual task performance, you need to measure the, the motor performance, so it's either walking or balance performance, as well as cognitive performance. Yeah, Because we want to make sure it is a real reduction of interference rather than a cognitive motor trade-off just the patients might choose to sacrifice the performance of the walking task so that they can maintain the cognitive performance or even improve cognitive performance. So we want to make sure we measure both in order to assess whether there's a true uh, reduction of interference.
1: Well, thanks very much for chatting. Uh, I think there's some really interesting findings in that review and... As we said at the beginning, it really was a a mountain of evidence that you managed to summarise really succinctly so people would get a lot of information just by investing the time in reading one paper. They will learn about a really mammoth amount of evidence. So thanks very much for chatting today. Thank you very much.
0: That was Clinical Associate Professor Mark Elkins, the Scientific Editor of Journal of Physiotherapy, and Professor Marco Pang, from the Department of Rehabilitation Sciences at the Hong Kong Polytechnic University. And you've been listening to another episode of Talking Physio, brought to you by the Physiotherapy Research Foundation and FlexEase. Thanks for listening and make sure you catch the next episode of the Talking Physio podcast.